This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and immane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows. The good guys lost Everybody knows The fight was fixed The poor stay poor The rich get rich That's how it goes Everybody knows Live from Toronto, Canada The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett From Zoomer Radio AM 740. And uh, congratulations to Spain for a very tense overtime victory in the the World Cup. And our Dutch friends, condolences to you. Many of you probably weeping in your beer even at this hour, no doubt. And uh, I believe the octopus uh, was seven for seven. If you were following this, uh, who would have thought? A cephalopod with a predilection for uh, gambling would be able to divine the uh, the winner of each of the crucial matches. I believe it was seven for seven. It would, uh, I guess, they would place this live octopus on some sort of a a surface, and and one of its tentacles would point to one of two flags, and in this case, it pointed to Spain over the Netherlands, and it did so accurately, seven for seven. So if you were betting with the octopus, uh, you would be way ahead of the game. Uh, and, you know, this has happened many times. Uh, there, there was a, uh, I believe there was a monkey at one point that was uh, uh, playing the stock market, and it actually ended up doing better than many of the, uh, the brokerage firms. Uh, you know, it, th- it makes you wonder, you know, why do we spend so much money on accountants and lawyers when a, um, an octopus or a monkey would do just fine? Uh, Welcome to the program, the July 11th edition. My, the summer is flying by, is it not? Uh, And uh, we'll uh, keep coming at you with some uh, great live uh, programs over the summer tonight, no exception. But uh, just give give you a a quick heads up. Next week on the program, we'll be talking uh, with one of the members of the Bohemian Grove Action Network. And uh, this is a, a group of uh, volunteers that have been, I guess, attempting to infiltrate and certainly monitor 
uh, the goings-on inside this exclusive uh, uh, a, a club for the, the world's elite, a playground for the world's elite up in, uh, I think it's up near San Luis Obispo, California, along the Russian River, if, I'm, if my geography is correct, uh, the gathering of the elite every year up there in Bohemian Grove. So we'll, we'll speak to someone from the Bohemian Grove Action Network. Uh, but for tonight... You know, Einstein uh, once said that science without religion is lame, but religion without science is blind. And uh, for, uh, for centuries, really, there has been a, a bit of a rift between the, uh, the two fields. And uh, some individuals have t- attempted to bridge that gap. And tonight's guest, I think, is, uh, is just one of those. He is not only an astronomer, and an astrophysicist, but he's also an old earth creationist. And we're going to find out what that means, old earth creationist, in, uh, in just a moment. But he is here to affirm the scientific accuracy of the Bible. He's going to discuss a, a testable creation model. He's going to reveal what Darwin didn't know and why the fossil record is the way it is. He's also going to explain why the Big Bang um, uh, theory is proof of God's existence. He'll explain his theory of progressive creationism, which uh, posits that while the Earth is billions of years old, life did not appear by natural forces alone, but that a supernatural agent formed different life forms in incremental progressive stages. Hugh Ross launched his career at age seven when he went to the library to find out why stars are hot. Physics and astronomy captured his curiosity and never let go. At age 17, he became the youngest person ever to serve as director of observations for Vancouver's Royal Astronomical Society. With the help of provincial scholarship and a National Research Council of Canada fellowship, he completed his undergraduate degree in physics from the University of British Columbia and graduate degrees in astronomy from the U of T. The uh, National Research Council also sent him to the United States for postdoctoral studies. At Caltech, he researched quasi-stellar objects of quasar or quasars, some of the most distant and ancient objects in the universe. Hughes' unshakable confidence that God's revelations in Scripture and nature do not, will not, and cannot contradict became his unique message. Wholeheartedly, Encouraged by family and friends, communicating that message as, as broadly and clearly as possible has become his mission. Thus, in 1986, he founded Science Faith Think Tank Reasons to Believe. He and his colleagues at RTB keep tabs on the frontiers of research to share with scientists and non-scientists alike the thrilling news of what's being discovered and how it connects with biblical theology. In this realm, he has written many books, including The Fingerprint of God, the Creator and the Cosmos, Beyond the Cosmos, The Genesis Question, A Matter of Days, Creation of Science, Why the Universe is the Way it Is, and More Than a Theory. And a great pleasure to have Dr. Hugh Ross here on The Conspiracy Show AM 740. Hugh, how are you? Doing well, thank you. Thanks for joining us tonight. Uh, My pleasure. I I think in the introduction I I sort of uh, described a little bit about what old Earth creationism is all about, but, uh, you know, many of us are familiar with... uh, with, um, uh, creation science and and those that uh, believe the um, the Bible uh, is infallible and 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 must be taken literally that the the earth is you know 
on the, on the order of 10,000 years old and, and so forth. But you're an old Earth creationist. Explain what that means exactly. Well, I, I always was, ever since I picked up a Bible for the first time at age 17. I mean, reading through it, it never occurred to me that anyone would ever read it from a young Earth perspective. And that's because when you look at Genesis 1, there's no closure on day 7. There's an evening and a morning for the first six days, but there is no evening and morning for day seven. And also it sums up the creation account by referring to all seven days with the same word day. So even without any knowledge of Hebrew, I realized that one of the literal definitions for the word day had to be a long period of time. And later on I discovered that indeed the Hebrew word yom has four different literal definitions part of the daylight hours, all the daylight hours, a 24-hour period, or a long but finite period of time. I also recognize that there's only one word in Biblical Hebrew that could be used for a long period of time, and that's that word, uh, yom. So I tell people I believe in seven literal days, but keep in mind that one of those literal definitions is a long period of time. So that's what distinguishes uh, our Reasons to Believe organization from the Young Earth organizations, who choose the literal definition at 24 hours. But, you know, the hallmark of reasons to believe is integration. We think a lot of these disputes amongst creationists and evolutionists and atheists and Christians, both within the Church and outside the Church, is a failure to integrate all 66 books of the Bible and a failure to integrate all the scientific disciplines. So just as it's essential to integrate biology with physics and math and chemistry and geology, etc., Likewise, you need to do the same thing uh, with the 66 different books of the Bible. Not all the answers are in Genesis. Most of the creation accounts are outside the book of Genesis. Dr. Hugh Ross is uh, with us, and uh, we're discussing creation as science. Now, uh, uh, how difficult is it uh, to operate in, I won't say two worlds, because there is some convergence, but, uh, you know, there is a, a huge chasm or, or schism uh, between religion and science uh, in, in, in many quarters. How, how difficult is it to walk the halls of academia as an astronomer, as a, or, or uh, the, the, the halls of uh, you know, uh, scientific inquiry as an astronomer and an astrophysicist, but also to be a, a, a devout a Christian and, and one who believes in the Bible? I mean, how do you, how do you interact with your, say, non-believing colleagues? Well, we don't have a lot that much of a difficulty. I mean, our most frequent speaking event is on a college or a university campus. And I think one reason why we're received so well, in spite of our uh, belief in an inerrant and infallible Bible, is that we do take the scientific method seriously. We're prepared to put our beliefs to the test and make appropriate adjustments in the light of new knowledge and understanding. And that's basically how the scientific enterprise operates. We have these models, uh, we have competing models, and uh, the best model is the one that explains the record of nature with the greatest comprehension and detail, and most successfully predicts future scientific discoveries. So we've taken the pains to develop a testable biblical creation model and kind of put it out there with all the competing models, both within um, you know, the secular, atheistic realm and within the Christian realm, and say, let the best model win. And uh, so when we go on the campus, rather than bashing the evolutionists, we present a positive case for our creation model, and then we invite people from an evolutionary perspective or an agnostic or atheistic perspective to critique our model. And if you ask for critique, you will get it, and it's a way to build 
uh, bridges and actually engage rather than have attacks going on. So we found this an effective way to work for peace and resolution and get dialogue going with people that otherwise uh, would be very hostile. I think that's an excellent approach and it's, uh, it's needed uh, in, in this area because uh, the discussion has become, uh, well, the rhetoric has just been uh, sort of, uh, it's starting to explode really and it and can get nasty at times. So I'm glad that, that you're taking this approach. Dr. Hugh Ross is with us. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit about this testable creation model and we'll also talk about the Big Bang and how it affirms the existence of God. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To reach Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Dr. Hugh Ross is with us as we discuss creation as science. Uh, someone once uh, uh, said to me on the, on the radio, in the beginning, God, the first four w- words in the Bible actually nail uh, two laws of, uh, uh, two sort of principal laws of science. Uh, I, I believe it was the, the first and second law of thermodynamics, if I have that correctly. Is that, is that sound reasonable? Yeah, it does, and it's more explicitly stated in uh, the New Testament book of Romans, where it says the entire creation is subject to the law of decay, referring to the second law of thermodynamics. So, in the beginning, God. How does that nail the first two laws of thermodynamics? Well, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and uh, the phrase, the heavens and the earth, uh, it's used nine times in the Old Testament, and it always refers to the totality of physical reality. So it means all matter, energy, space, and time. And the New Testament talks about an actual beginning of space and time when God creates the universe. And so the first law of thermodynamics basically states that nothing can be created or destroyed, once the universe is in place. The book of Jeremiah says that the laws that govern the heavens and the earth are fixed. So one of the biblical predictions made about the world is that when we look at the universe, we should see unchanging laws of physics. And indeed, that's exactly what we astronomers confirm when we look at the light of distant galaxies and stars. We see in that light the signature of the laws of physics, and they're identical to the laws that we see today including this pervasive second law of thermodynamics and uh, the fact that nothing is created or destroyed. That's a good example where if you integrate everything the Bible says about creation, you can get an accurate picture of what it's communicating. Uh, The Big Bang uh, has always uh, perplexed me because uh, uh, I'm I'm certainly uh, a layman uh, when it comes to science, but the idea that in the beginning there was nothing and then it exploded... How does nothing explode? Well, you have the Creator beyond space and time bringing into existence in an infinitesimal volume all of physical reality. The universe actually starts off with highly uh, curved, you know, you know, extreme space curvature. It's created in a, in a, in a state of expansion, and uh, that re- causes light to form, photons form shortly thereafter, which leads to the production of matter. That's the standard. Uh, Big Bang model, 
but it's something that was predicted in the Bible thousands of years ago. In fact, that was a huge factor in my becoming a Christian, was picking, I mean, I didn't meet Christians until I was 27, uh, and, you know, to talk to them about these matters, but when I picked up a Bible, I realized it taught Big Bang cosmology. It taught that there was a beginning of space and time, that the universe continuously expands from that beginning, that it expands under constant laws of physics, and therefore it's a universe that must get colder and colder as it gets older and older. Um, and, you know, no book outside of the Bible taught that perspective on the universe until the 20th century. Where about, excuse me, uh, Dr. Ross, but where in the Bible does it, specifically, does it talk about those things that you just described? Because I find that fascinating. Well, again, you've got to look at all the creation accounts in the Bible. I mean, when you look at the Quran or the Mormon texts or the Hindu Vedas, you find one or two or three accounts of creation rather repetitive, when you pick up the Bible, there's over two dozen independent creation accounts. The book of Genesis will not talk about the expansion of the universe, but it's mentioned 11 times when you look at the book of Job, Psalms, uh, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Zechariah, and puts it in all three Hebrew verb forms, which means these are not metaphorical passages. They're talking about a literal, continuous expansion of the universe from this beginning of matter, energy, space, and time. And there are seven places in the Bible where it speaks about constant laws of physics. So that's Big Bang cosmology. And it's not just me, a 21st century astronomer, that's reading that with hindsight into the text. Jewish theologians a thousand years ago uh, saw that in the Old Testament and said, this is what the Bible is predicting that we'll find to be true about the universe. And indeed, we're living in a time where we know what everything the Bible said about the universe is uh, correct. And the fact that the Bible is alone in making those pronouncements about the universe, for me, was a key piece of evidence that this book was not humanly inspired. It had to be inspired by the one that actually created the universe. Uh, why, do, why, why does the, the Big Bang, though, uh, affirm the existence of God? Why can't we just say that in the beginning there was, an, there was nothing... Uh, uh, and then, you know, that, that, that life in the universe uh, uh, under those, con- those conditions was inevitable. Well, what you see in Big Bang cosmology is a beginning of space and time itself. As I said, the Bible taught that explicitly. Time is that dimension or realm in which cause and effect phenomena take place. So what that implies is that there must exist a causal agent outside of space and time that was responsible for creating this physical universe. And one of the things we're doing at Reasons to Believe is looking in detail at the record of nature to see if we can come up with a more detailed description of that causal agent, and we're discovering it matches perfectly the description of the God in the Bible and contradicts the gods that we see recorded in the uh, competing holy books. A causal agent outside time and space. Interesting. And one who is also a personal being, because when we look at the characteristics of the universe, we see that it's been designed and advanced for the support of human beings. Freeman Dyson, an atheist physicist, wrote many years ago that when you look at the universe, you can't avoid the conclusion that it knew we were coming. So billions of years ago, it was designed purposely in advance for that brief moment in cosmic history in which we human beings can exist. So that implies not only is a causal agent 
a being that transcends space and time or the power to create space-time dimensions at will, but must be a personal being, because only a personal being can manifest the attributes of intellect, knowledge, creativity, power, and care. The uh, the description of uh, the uh, in Genesis, the Genesis account of creation, uh, when it describes sort of the order in which things were created, uh, there is some, I believe, a critique. Uh, the idea that fruit trees came before mammals, if I have that correct. Uh, can you clarify that, 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 that uh, disagreement? Well, that's uh, a problem with the King James translation. Um, the problem is that Biblical Hebrew, that's the Old Testament, uh, has a very tiny vocabulary size. That explains why they only have the one word for a long period of time, which is identical to the word for day. Uh, the word earth has five different literal definitions. The word heavens has three. So that's why it's so crucial to look at the context to see which of the literal definitions uh, that uh, you would go with. Uh, the original Hebrew words that are used in creation day three are not referring to deciduous fruit trees. Basically, it's three words uh, that refer to plants that have some level of stiffness. So a fern, for example, would qualify just as well as a fruit tree. Uh, when you see in the English the word trees, uh, the Hebrew word has a much broader definition than the English word, and that would be the same thing for the food that would support the embryo. So it's basically talking about the seeds um, that, that what you would get from all plants that would reproduce, uh, the food that would supply that seed so that it could uh, produce an adult plant, and a plant that has uh, you know, a little more stiffness than, say, a bacterial species. And uh, we, we put, out a, put out a booklet every year, Reasons to Believe, called the uh, Top Ten Breakthroughs of the Year. And the one we published for 2009 included a research paper published in Nature documenting uh, a chemical signature, an isotope chemical signature, showing that plant life was just as abundant on the Earth for the 250 million years before the Cambrian explosion as after the Cambrian explosion which would confirm the order of events you see in Genesis 1. All right, we'll uh, take a time out, come back, and uh, continue to talk about creation as science with Hugh Ross. And the website is www.reasons.org. Reasons to Believe a Ministry. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Dr. Hugh Ross is with us as we discuss creation as science. If you'd like to get on board with a question or comment, 416-360-0740, 416-360-0740, out of town, toll free, from Maine to Minnesota and Thunder Bay to the Carolinas, 866 740 Four seven forty. Uh, all right. the um, The idea that uh, uh, the fossil record uh, would tend to negate uh, perhaps some of the things that that creation uh, scientists uh, believe. Um, for example, the um, Adaptation and and uh, uh, you know one species sort of uh, evolving into uh, tr- you know transitional forms and then finally evolving into another species. 
Uh, weigh in here on, on, on the fossil record. Uh, does it confirm, uh, does it affirm or, or uh, um, contradict the creation science point of view? Well, a number of atheistic evolutionists and uh, Christians who take a theistic evolutionary perspective look at the fossil record, and you can see evidence for dramatic mass extinction events followed by mass speciation events. And they say, if this is God's handiwork, then why is he doing it over and over again? It seems like a clumsy God or a God that's simply creating by trial and error. But if you look at Psalm 104, one of the most extensive creation accounts in the Bible, it makes a statement it's the property of all life to die off, but God recreates and renews the face of the earth. And a problem with paleontologists and biologists and looking at the fossil record, they don't use an interdisciplinary approach, typically. And in astronomy, we recognize why the Creator would use that means uh, to keep earth plentiful on the face of the earth, because that's Psalm 104. God does this to maintain the maximum biodiversity and biomass on the planet for the maximum time. And it has to do with the physics of the sun in particular, and the earth and the moon to a lesser degree. Uh, the moon is brightening as it converts hydrogen into helium in its core, so it's getting hotter as the millions of years go by. And life can only tolerate a very tiny change and the luminosity of the sun before the planet would go sterile, unless you put just the right life on the Earth at just the right time, so that, that life will regulate the greenhouse gases in Earth's atmosphere. So as the sun, for example, is getting dimmer during the early history of life on Earth, the Creator would be intervening in order to put life on the planet that would be more effective at pumping greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, so as the sun gets dimmer, the surface of the Earth stays at the ideal temperature, and then when the sun stops losing mass and is converting hydrogen into helium and it begins to brighten, you want to turn it around. And now you want to put life on the planet that would be progressively more effective at pulling greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere so that over the past 3.8 billion years, you maintain an ideal constant temperature on the surface of the Earth. That can only happen if you have an intelligent being who knows the future physics of the sun, uh, the future rotation rate of the earth, and the future distance of the sun relative to the earth, so that you can have exactly the right kind of life on the planet at the right time to perfectly compensate for all the changes in the solar system. And as you look at the fossil record, it reveals the testimony of a creator doing exactly that thing, because you see these events. Uh, where between 50 and 90 percent of all species of life on the planet are, are, are removed at one moment, and then uh, shortly thereafter, sometimes less than 10,000 years thereafter, we see a wholesale replacement of new life forms, and they don't show up with a crippled ecological relationships with one another. We see in the fossil record the ecological relationships are optimized immediately with the appropriate balance between carnivores, herbivores, uh, detrivores, and uh, parasites, which is something you would never anticipate from an evolutionary perspective. So in that context, uh, you know, we wrote a book called What Darwin Didn't Know on the Fossil Record, uh, making the point that uh, now that we have as much knowledge as we do about the fossil record, we see that Charles Darwin's predictions have been falsified, and it supports the statements that you see in Psalm 104.
Well, did he was Darwin actually writing about macroevolution in Origin of the Species, or was he was he mainly concerned with microevolution, like adaptation? Well, what he was observing on his voyage on the Beagle was microevolution, and you know he was only there for five years in the Galapagos uh, Islands, and what he saw was a change, for example, in the beak structure of uh, the finches on the islands. Well, we've now been observing for 150 years, and Charles Darwin presumed that the changes he was seeing were linear and could be extrapolated into the future to give dramatic changes. We now know he was wrong, because what we see in the uh, beaks of the finches on Galapagos is that they vary around. It's a sinusoidal variation around the mean. What does that mean? Well, what that means is over a period of uh, 100 years or more, we see the beaks getting larger then smaller, wider, and narrower. And it's basically in response to changes in the food supply on the islands. So rather than natural selection being evidence for macroevolution, it's simply evidence for microevolution. And it's a microevolution that maintains the stability of the species. In other words, natural selection argues for stasis, not for wholesale change. But evolutionists today will also point to mutations. That's something Charles Darwin didn't see. And they recognize that natural selection can't do much, but they're now claiming that mutations in gene exchange are the real drivers of macroevolution. But as we point out more than a theory, we can now use bacteria to put to the test these evolutionary claims. And there's a number of long-term evolutionary experiments which basically refute the claims of those who... Uh, you know, hold to a macroevolutionary perspective. When I think of mutations, uh, Dr. Ross, I think of disease, not the creation of a new species. Well, that's typically what you get. That's something that, uh, you know, geneticists have noticed, is that most mutations are neutral, which means they neither harm nor benefit the individual. Uh, but there's always far more deleterious mutations than there are beneficial mutations. So the second law of thermodynamics, the law of decay, operates in genetics just as it does everywhere else. So, for example, in our own human genome, we can see that our genome is deteriorating uh, rather than becoming more advanced. Now, I, I, I mean, I have, I, I have a bias. I am a, a, an Orthodox Christian. I've stated it publicly. Uh, and so I, I tend to believe the Bible. Uh, I, I think evolution is an interesting theory, but that's as far as it goes. I mean, if you... If you put evolution to sort of the same scientific rigor uh, that others would be, I mean, it, it, it is just a theory, is it not? I mean, it's not, does it even, does it even uh, survive sort of the scientific uh, um, model? Does, I mean, it's, is it repeatable? Is it observable? Well, I think it is. I think it can be imminently tested. I mean, the, the excuse years ago was, well, we simply haven't enough time to do real-time laboratory experiments to see what's going on. But a 20-year study of bacteria is equivalent to a 1 million year test of human evolution. So in that sense, bacteria, because they reproduce so quickly and exist in such huge population levels, uh, becomes a proxy uh, for those species that have much longer uh, you know, changes. But one thing we've got to be careful about is you know, you'll, you'll hear from biologists that evolution is a proven fact, and in one context they're correct. I mean, if you look over the past 3.8 billion years, we can see that life began simple. It was unicellular. And over those 3.8 billion years, we can see a progression 
to more and more advanced species of plants and animals. So there's no doubt that life has changed over the history of the Earth, and that's something that all scientists accept. Uh, the real debate, however, is what is responsible for those changes. And when you talk to these ardent evolutionists, including Richard Dawkins himself, he will admit that the former is factual, but not the latter. Uh, we do not have uh, factual evidence to support the idea that all these changes we see in the history of life on planet Earth happen by strictly natural means. I mean, evolutionists, for example, can't even come up with a naturalistic explanation for the simplest step, which would be the origin of a first life form. Well, we have uh, the, the, uh, the law of biogenesis. Uh, all life must come from life. So doesn't the evolutionary model contradict the, the law of biogenesis? Well, that's something we wrote about in our book, Origins of Life, that uh, you know, we've been now studying. Uh, Origin of Life researchers have put 60 years' worth of research into trying to explain the beginning of the first life form. And we now realize that that first life form came about without the benefit of a primordial soup. Uh, we've looked for the chemical signatures for prebiotics on the early history of the Earth, and it's not there. All we see is the evidence for postbiotics. We see no prebiotics, and we now understand why. It's called the oxygen ultraviolet paradox. If you've got oxygen in the environment of the early Earth, that's toxic to prebiotic chemistry. But if you don't have oxygen, there will be no ozone shield, which means ultraviolet radiation will pour in from the sun, and that's equally toxic to the origin of life. Moreover, we now know that the origin of life happened uh, in a geologic instant of time. The very moment that the Earth becomes cool enough for liquid water and rocks, you have life abundant in the face of the Earth. If there's no time and there's no soup, there's no naturalistic explanation for the origin of life. And that's only two of about a dozen uh, problematic issues for a naturalistic explanation of life's origin. And if the origin of life is a supernatural event, then obviously the more difficult steps which is getting human beings and advanced life uh, would likewise require supernatural intervention. Uh, before we get to the calls, and uh, uh, people are lining up now with questions and comments, just so I'm very clear on uh, uh, your uh, creation model, did, we, did God use evolution in order to create, ultimately, uh, man, or was uh, Adam created... Uh, essentially out of, out of dust. I mean, did, was, was man created fully formed? Um, well, it tells us in Genesis that God made Adam and he created Adam. Now, it uses two different Hebrew verbs, one for God taking the dust of the earth and personally manufacturing the body of Adam. But there's something in Adam that never existed before in the face of the earth. The Hebrew word bara means to create something that's brand new. And that's referring to the spirit component of Adam. According to the Bible, only human beings are spiritual animals. The rest of the animals are not. So that's why you see the two verbs used. But both events are supernatural. So again, um, was, did, 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 uh, did man, was man created uh, through evolution uh, you know, from uh, primates? Uh, early, uh, you know, primates to, to, to modern man, or did, did, he, did, did he just appear one day, fully formed? 
he appeared one day fully formed by God taking the dust of the earth and uh, using that dust to put together the body of Adam. Then he breathed into him the spirit, which was uh, uh, the uh, put Adam in the image of God, body, soul, and spirit, the only animal on the face of the earth uh, that has that signature. Now, it's also true that we share a lot of DNA with other species. I mean, 35% of our DNA is also seen in daffodils. And that's because what works well for a daffodil is also optimal for us. And so God repeats these optimal designs. I also think he put identical DNA in us compared to different kinds of animals so we could use those animals for medical advance. So, for example, mice and rats have a DNA that governs uh, brain structure or uh, uh, energy pathways for memory that are identical to human beings. The mice and rats have that. The chimpanzees don't. So uh, we are distinct from the great apes in many respects uh, that we see faced up in other animals. But again, mice and rats make much better medical experiment animals than, say, monkeys and apes. All right, let's go to uh, Grimsby, Ontario, and welcome Stephen to The Conspiracy Show, AM 740. Good evening, Stephen. Good evening. Hi, you're on with Dr. Hugh Ross. Go ahead. I utterly believe in the theory of creationism as is in the Bible. It says God created the universes, and as you would understand, he would be in one place, and as he created different planets, he would hurl them away from him. And all scientists agree that the universes are receding from Earth. I believe that I can also disprove the silly theory of the Big Bang theory in about one to two minutes. If you were to take a hundred or two hundred styrofoam balls and glue them together into one big ball, leaving room for half a stick of dynamite in the middle, and run the necessary fuse and the wires, take them to a cliff in a rock quarry where it's safe to explode dynamite, suspend that in space over the cliff, fire. When it explodes, there will be nothing left. But in the Big Bang Theory, the silly Big Bang Theory, here is the Earth. And it's absolutely impossible to have an explosion and have something there. I believe God created everything, but not by a Big Bang, because if there was a Big Bang, there'd be nothing where Earth is. Well, I mean, uh, you're misunderstanding the Big Bang Theory. It's not like a stick of dynamite exploding. What it is is a continual expansion from an infinitesimal volume where all the matter and energy, uh, stars and galaxies, including even all the space-time dimensionality, is constrained to the three-dimensional surface of the four-dimensional expanding universe. I mean, a good analogy to think of planet Earth. Planet Earth is three dimensions, but we human beings live on a two-dimensional surface of the three-dimensional Earth. Likewise, all the stars and galaxies are on that three-dimensional surface. So it's not a chaotic explosion from the beginning. It's a highly fine-tuned, in fact, it's the most fine-tuned, the most highly designed thing that we can see in all of physical reality. If you were to ask me what's the most spectacular evidence we have for divine supernatural design, it's in the control of the expansion of the universe from the cosmic creation event. All right, let's uh, welcome Tony in Brampton. Good evening, Tony. You're on the line with Dr. Hugh Ross. Go ahead. 
Hello, Dr. Hugh Ross. How are you? Doing well. Good. Uh, I, I am a uh, creationist. Uh, I believe God created us. Um, but I disagree with matter cannot be created or destroyed. Otherwise, uh, how did God create matter? Uh, secondly, how did Jesus perform the miracles of the multiplication of the fish and the loaves? Are we to understand that as an allegory? Thirdly, uh, the CERN accelerator that they're building, they're going to try and produce an antimatter. If they are able to do that, then they will be able to annihilate some matter. And fourthly, uh, black holes. Uh, what are they, and are, is, could that not possibly be the destruction of matter? Great questions all, Tony. Uh, Dr. Hugh Ross? Sure. Well, I noticed I made a caveat about the first law. Nothing is created or destroyed once you've got God putting the universe into existence at the Big Bang uh, creation event. And so uh, God definitely uh, intervenes from beyond space and time to make this universe of matter, energy, space, and time. And uh, that's what I would call a transcendent miracle. I mean, if you look at the Bible, there's three different kinds of miracles that God performs two which take place within the laws of physics, and one that takes place beyond the laws of physics. The creation of the universe is in that category. Likewise, the creation of the loaves and the fishes would be in the category of a transcendent miracle, God intervening beyond the laws of physics in space and time. Likewise, when Jesus uh, walked on water. Uh, concerning antimatter, um, we don't need the CERN. Uh, you know, particle physicists have had uh, the ability to make antimatter for some time. And then when we do that, uh, that antimatter must be kept isolated from matter, because when it makes contact, you get an annihilation event where the matter and the antimatter interact and uh, produce energy. Uh, but, you know, these science fiction movies where they show somebody with a bottle of antimatter, uh, that's really not uh, possible. Uh, you really can't isolate any large quantity of antimatter for any significant period of time. In these experiments, the isolation is less than a fraction of a second. Uh, your question of black holes again? I didn't oh. quite catch on what your point was about black holes. Oh, uh, we, we lost uh, uh, Tony in, uh, in Brampton, uh, and I don't recall what it was either. But um, let me ask you a, sort of a related question. And that is, uh, that's to do with, with dark matter or dark energy. And I think we're told that about 90% of the universe or 95% of the universe is comprised of this stuff, and we don't really even know what it is. But does the Bible uh, affirm the, the existence of, of, of dark matter or dark energy? Well, it actually does. It's in Job 38, verses 19 and 20, where God speaks about creation and says, Do you know where darkness resides? Can you take me to its place? And it implies that darkness is an actual substance. Now, when I was a student in Canada, I was taught that, uh, you know, darkness is simply the absence of light. Well, astronomers in the past few years have discovered that darkness is an actual substance and takes three forms. There's dark energy, exotic dark matter, and ordinary dark matter. And the difference between those two is that ordinary dark matter is made up of protons, neutrons, and electrons. It strongly interacts with photons, so if you get enough of it clumped together, it will emit light. Uh, but there's six times as much exotic matter as there is ordinary matter, and that's matter made up of particles that does not interact well with photons. 
and therefore can only be detected by its gravitational influence. But we now have a good uh, uh, measure of the precise locations of all three forms of dark stuff, and that location must be extremely fine-tuned in order to make possible a galaxy like our Milky Way, which has highly symmetrical spiral arms of the right distance and shape and the structure so that you could have advanced life existing in our Milky Way galaxy. Something we've, I've written about extensively in my book, Why the Universe is the Way It Is. And just to give you the figure, the universe is made up 99.73% of dark stuff. The stars and galaxies that we see is just 0.27%. That's remarkable. All right, uh, Dr. Hugh Ross, uh, stay put. We'll uh, reconnoiter on the other side. And much to discuss, I'd like to know whether string theory might actually be mentioned uh, in the Bible. And I want to go back to the uh, the fossil record. And, uh, you know, there is a mention in the Bible of uh, the Levi- Leviathan, uh, which has led some creationists to... to uh, suppose that perhaps man and dinosaurs may have in fact existed at the same time we'll get your uh, your take on that as well stay with us there's a man going around taking names and he decides who to free and who to blame Everybody won't be treated all the same. There'll be a golden ladder reaching down when the man comes around. If you're sure your phone isn't tapped, call now, 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. Tonight's program is produced by John Satiriou, technical production, Dan Ellison. Say, if uh, you haven't registered on uh, the website richardserrett.com, I encourage you to do so, and that will allow you to view my weekly video blogs. But in order to do that, you've got to sign in. So if you're not a member of The Conspiracy Show, create an account at richardserrett.com, S-Y-R-E-T-T, Richard Serrett, S-Y-R-E-T-T.com. Dr. Hugh Ross is with us as we uh, discuss creation as science. Uh, I'm trying to remember, uh, I've, I've talked about uh, related subjects uh, over the years on this program, uh, and somebody was telling me uh, that the idea of, of hyperdimensions, uh, hyperspace, is actually in the Bible. I mean, scientists or theoretical physicists now talk about, I've lost count, how many uh, sort of hyperdimensions there might be. But they, they pointed to a chapter and verse in the Bible that actually hints at that, something about the, the heavens being unscrolled. Uh, and uh, uh, theoretical physicists describe hyperdimensions sort of existing in that manner. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, there are three places in the Bible where it talks about how the universe will end, how God will wrap it up like a scroll, and it will all disappear into a point, and uh, disappear in a fiery uh, heat, uh, which sounds like the universe uh, disappearing into a singularity. And the New Testament, it says, as God spoke the universe into existence, he will speak it out of existence. And a number of theoretical physicists have pointed out that this sounds a lot like what's called the ekpyrotic inflationary Big Bang model. 
which is the idea that the universe is a 10-dimensional flat sheet. And when I mentioned earlier that the universe has four dimensions, that's ignoring the six tiny space dimensions that accompany length, width, and height. So in order to see how gravity and quantum mechanics can coexist, physicists have now discovered the only way you can fit all the symmetries that both physical principles demand is that the universe has nine dimensions of space rather than just three. Um, and, you know, in those uh, nine dimensions, uh, you, know, you can have all the laws of physics uh, compatible. Uh, however, in the ekpyrotic Big Bang model, you have all these nine dimensions of space in the one time dimension in a geometric flat sheet. But the universe of today is much bigger than the universe that we see. The universe that we see is the universe of the past. And an expanding universe, that would be a smaller universe than the one that actually exists today. So there's some speculation that if you look far enough along the 10-dimensional flat sheet beyond where we can actually see, that it curls in on itself and becomes a U, which would mean you could have a 10-dimensional flat sheet existing a hairbreadth just above the 10-dimensional sheet that we are now in. And if you put the two sheets close enough together, namely about a millimeter apart, then there's a possibility that a quantum space-time fluctuation on the top sheet will eventually make contact with a space-time quantum fluctuation on the bottom sheet. And if that were to happen, the entire universe would disappear into a singularity, uh, which would fit a very literal interpretation of the passage in Isaiah, Second Peter, and the book of Revelation. These other dimensions... Uh, and obviously now we're, we're getting maybe um, moving away from the scientific world into more of the spiritual realm, but there may be some scientific basis for this. And that, I'm wondering about what might exist in these other dimensions. Would, could these other dimensions be, in fact, the, the, the spiritual plane? Well, I think so. I mean, uh, in the Old Testament, it uses the phrase heaven and earth, in contrast with the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth refers to the totality, the physical creation, but the phrase heaven and earth, which is used 19 times, refers to the totality of the universe plus the totality of the angelic realm, which is a completely different dimensional realm uh, from this universe. And when I was a young man, uh, you know, uh, as an undergraduate at the University of British Columbia, I spent two years comparing the different holy books of the religions of the world. And what I noticed was the Bible was the only one of those books that described physical reality in a context that we humans can't visualize in length, width, height, and time. The other holy books try to describe God and his operations uh, in this uh, human box of length, width, height, and time. So, for example, the Bible is the only book that describes God as a triune being. It's the only book that uh, claims that there's a possibility of being eternally secure in a relationship with the Creator. It's the only one that says that uh, God controls everything, predetermines all my thoughts, words, and actions, and yet I'm a free will being, and I will be held responsible by my Creator. Those are paradoxical doctrines that are resolvable if you allow God to operate in the equivalent of multiple dimensions of space and time beyond what we humans experience, but they're contradictions if it's only length, width, height, and time. So that was a crucial piece of evidence for me as a young man, 
that of all those holy books, only the Bible could come from a non-human source. There was a, uh, a professor, I believe, of mathematics at Tulane University. I remember uh, um, trying to plow my way through this book, oh, 20 years ago, and uh, I couldn't get uh, through it. But I was just so intrigued by the title and the description on the on the uh, back cover that I had to try. And it had to do with a sort of mathematical proof of the immortality of the soul. Does that uh, ring a bell? Do you remember that professor? Oh, yeah, I know the gentleman. Uh, you know, we're friends, and uh, he's made quite a spiritual journey from atheism to now being a devout Roman Catholic, and uh, has written a number of books. His latest one uh, has to do uh, with putting the Christian faith to the test. Uh, so uh, the book on the physics of immortality was written before he uh, gave his life to Christ. Uh, but there he actually does come up uh, with a mathematical demonstration that there must be a God beyond space and time that's responsible for creating this universe. And then now he's trying to develop mathematical models for the Trinity. And as we were talking to him, I was saying, you know, that's transcendent. There's going to be limitations on what we human beings can do with that. But I do appreciate the fact that Frank Tipler yes. is so committed to putting to the test scientifically people's spiritual beliefs, and I, I do indeed commend them for doing that. That's right, Frank Tipler. But can you, you, you can't actually reduce the Creator to a mathematical formula, or can you? Well, he thinks he can give it a go, and I believe that there are serious limitations, that, uh, you know, God transcends our realm. Uh, there's real limits to what we can do with our physics and mathematics. We'll never know everything about the universe. When we were having a conversation, uh, we were talking about the theorem produced by the German uh, philosopher Kurt Gödel. It's called the incompleteness theorem, and talks about how there's fundamental limitations on what we human beings can uh, discover. Nevertheless, I commend Frank Tipler for doing what he can to push the envelope. We can learn a whole lot more than we give ourselves credit for, but we're never going to gain the mind of God. Do you think you could? explain, perhaps, uh, scientifically, what happens to us after we die? To a limited degree. I mean, we can know that there's a realm beyond uh, this, this one. I mean, it tells us in the Bible that eternity is written upon the heart of every human being. And, uh, you know, when I debate atheists, in fact, I debated uh, Frank Tipler at Caltech in front of 800 atheists of the Skeptic Society, and what I observed there it's just how passionate all these atheists were about God's non-existence. And my comment is, if you really did believe that God did not exist, you'd be treating him like the Tooth Fairy uh, or the Easter Bunny. Your passion tells me you really do believe he exists, but you don't like him. And they said, well, there's actually a lot of truth to what you're saying there. Um, and therefore, it really does demonstrate that uh, there's something internal within the spirit of every human being that knows that uh, when we die, it's not over. We're going to continue existing, and it's going to be in a different dimensional realm. Uh, that information, I believe, has been imprinted upon our heart, and I think it's also imprinted on the cosmos. I mean, in one of my latest books, Why the Universe is the Way It Is, I talk about how that message of the eternal destiny of human beings, uh, we can see imprinted on the universe, in particular, what's called the anthropic principle inequality. When we look at the universe, we can see that it's been designed to a phenomenal degree to make the existence of human beings possible, uh, but it can't be done in less than 14 billion years, 
given the laws of physics that the Creator chose for the universe. On the other hand, those same laws of physics tell us that we can't live in a civilized state for more than about 40,000 years. That's a tremendous difference. There's about a factor of a million difference between the maximum time we can live in a civilized state and the minimum time it would take to physically prepare a home for us human beings. An analogy that we use in the why the universe is the way it is is the wedding ceremony. It only lasts about 22 minutes. Uh, the typical American father will spend over $10,000 on his daughter's wedding, and that daughter will spend a year preparing for a wedding day. But we don't consider them insane because of the very high value and the very high purpose those 22 minutes serve. Likewise, was Brandon Carter, the British cosmologist, said, based on this enormous inequality we see in cosmology, there must be someone out there who has a very high value and a very high purpose for the human species. Hell, uh, does it exist? What's it like? And where is it? Well, hell, uh, like the new creation, is not part of uh, this dimensional realm. It's got nothing to do with the universe. Uh, so uh, it survives when the universe uh, no longer exists. And, uh, you know, uh, eternity is written in the heart of every human being, and each one of us gets to choose where we want to spend all of eternity. Heaven is a place uh, where you submit to the authority of the Creator for the rest of eternity, and God's not going to force that upon you. He does make the message in the Bible that's the best thing for every human being to do, and it's a way to really have a true peace and joy. Uh, but he also points out that uh, there are many human beings that see submission to the creator of the universe as an ultimate horror, and uh, therefore God's not going to force that upon them and has created a place uh, where they'll be free from the restraint of his Holy Spirit. But consequently, it's crucial that God put some restraint on those people, because without the restraint of the Holy Spirit... Uh, then the evil of those people would be unchecked. So that really explains why there's torment in hell. It's really a way to prevent hell from being a far worse place than it otherwise would be, given the decision of the inhabitants uh, to choose to go there. So it, it, is hell then uh, simply another one of these hyper-dimensions, possibly? Well, it is a different dimensional realm. I mean, it's some kind of dimensional realm. I'm not sure it's space and time, but it's definitely a, a dimensional realm with limitations, um, and it's not linked with height and time. Uh, so it's very different from this universe. All right, let's go to uh, Arthur here in Toronto. Arthur, your question for Dr. Hugh Ross. Hi. Hi there. I was going to talk about our Trinity, but you already mentioned it, so I won't get into it. Uh, what, you're, what you were saying, or your friend that I was saying, about hell being a place of torment. Well, the Bible doesn't say that. It says even Christ was sent to hell. Would Christ, would God torment his own son? Furthermore, he resurrected him after three days from this dead condition. Yeah, well, uh, keep in mind that uh, the English word hell is derived from uh, several different Greek and Hebrew words. Mm -hmm. And uh, the lake of fire didn't exist at the time that Jesus uh, was crucified. So he went down to the prison house uh, where people are kept. And there's some debate as to exactly uh, what uh, kind of uh, uh, prison house he went to to preach the gospel. Some say he didn't go to the waiting place of the damned, but he went to the waiting place of the Old Testament saints. And that was a temporary uh, you know, departure. 
or he went down uh, into the prison house of the damned and uh, you know made clear his defeat or his victory uh, over evil to all of them. Mm -hmm. uh, it's all based on just uh, three verses in the Bible. It's hard to build a definitive doctrine when you've only got uh, three three sentences to work with. But that's the range of debate. But it definitely wasn't the lake of fire. All right. Thanks for the call. Uh, let's um, uh, talk. go back to the fossil record for a moment. And uh, in the Bible they do mention, or it is mentioned, uh, I think it's in the book of Job, um, the Leviathan. Right. Uh, and some have supposed that that was referring to a, uh, a dinosaur. Right. Uh, uh, and uh, if you look at um, uh, certain depictions, uh, uh, you know, stone uh, 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 paintings and so forth, uh, of people riding on the backs of what appear to be dinosaurs and so forth, some, some have supposed that, in fact, man and dinosaurs might have existed at the same time. Yeah, that's a, a prevalent teaching in the young Earth creationist camp. You know, believing that the Earth and the universe are less than 10,000 years old, uh, they have the doctrine that dinosaurs and human beings are cohabited. That's not the position we take at Reasons to Believe. We believe that the dinosaurs were uh, predominant on the face of the Earth between 250 and 65 million years ago, went extinct at that time, and that Adam and Eve weren't created until sometime between 50 and 80,000 years ago. So there'd be no overlap at all between the dinosaurs and the human beings. And as far as those cave uh, paintings go in France and Spain, uh, you'd have to use a lot of imagination to think that they were painting a dinosaur. Uh, it could have been a small lizard they were painting. And, uh, you know, just like artists today, there's a lot of artistic uh, uh, expression that's used. They weren't trying to make a detailed uh, a painting of the actual animals, although there's one in France that comes pretty close uh, to, to doing uh, that very thing. So, uh, and as far as the Leviathan, the behemoth go, I believe it's referring to the hippopotamus and the crocodile. The context of those passages is God telling us how difficult it is to tame certain creatures. And uh, we've written about that uh, in our book, um, uh, the, the Genesis Question. All right, uh, stay with us, uh, Dr. Hugh Ross, back with more of our discussion on creation as science. Stay with us. We deal in illusions, man. None of it is true. But you people sit there day after day, night after night, all ages, colors, creeds. We're all you know. You're beginning to believe the illusions we're spinning here. You're beginning to think that the tube is reality and that your own lives are unreal. You do whatever the tube tells you. You dress like the tube. You ate like the tube. You raise your children like the tube. You even think like the tube. This is mass madness, you maniacs. In God's name, you people are the real thing. We are the illusion. Don't turn off your television sets. Turn them off now. Turn them off right now. Turn them off and leave them off. Turn them off right in the middle of the sentence I'm speaking to you now. Turn them off. Brainwashed in our childhood. Brainwashed by the school. Brainwashed by our teachers. And brainwashed by all the rules. Brainwashed by our leaders. By our kings and queens. Brainwashed in the open and brainwashed behind the scenes. Live from Toronto, Canada. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Ah, uh, now this is exciting. I just got an email from John Hutchison, who I've uh, talked to many times over the years. John Hutchison, 
Canadian inventor, mad scientist, self-taught physicist who discovered the Hutchison effect, uh, some sort of an anti-gravitic technology. I mean, he had this um, a lab set up in his apartment in New Westminster near Vancouver. And when he would throw this switch, uh, people uh, several blocks away would report interesting phenomena like, you know, plates rising off the table and so forth. And uh, they, they eventually forced him to move out of the apartment. But now, just got an email from John Hutchison and his world-famous anti-gravity lab uh, is for sale. For auction on eBay. I think I should put a bid on, on that. I would love to have... Imagine those huge Tesla coils and everything, setting up a, lab like, uh, a laboratory like that. I would be the talk of the neighborhood. Uh, I might even try and reproduce the Philadelphia experiment. <laughs> I'd certainly like to send our 2004 Freestar into oblivion. Anyway, uh, we've got to get John Hutchison back on the program. All right, right now, uh, Dr. Hugh Ross stays with us as we discuss creation as science. And let's go right back to the phones. And Doug is in Indiana tonight. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Doug, good morning. Morning. I'd like to talk to Mr. Ross about the, well, the universe is billions and billions of light years dimensionally. And we have the, each uh, universe, or each uh, galaxy in the universe possesses hundreds of millions of stars. And they've, they've uh, guessed at the, uh, of the, uh, billions of galaxies in the universe okay with with all this star systems and everything and it's located so far apart that any civilization that they do exist elsewhere in the universe if they have the ability to to transport those kind of distances to this planet as of in the way of ufos or anything similar they would have the ability to just annihilate us without any any uh any sweat whatsoever, and I wanted to more or less ask him, do you believe in life elsewhere in the universe? Great question, Doug. Thank you for that. Yeah, it is a good question, Doug, and it's one that uh, is getting a lot of uh, new insight from astronomers. I mean, we're now able to find planets outside of our solar system, and uh, as of yesterday, the list was up to 464 planets that have been discovered outside of our solar system, and we're discovering that none of them are like the planets in our solar system. So it's emphasizing the unique feature of uh, our solar system and our Earth in uh, particular. And so it's demonstrating that it appears that everywhere in the universe is hostile to advanced life except on our planet Earth. Uh, we're not finding any stars that are sufficiently like the sun that you could have a planet about it with, on which uh, advanced life would be possible. We're seeing that our Milky Way galaxy is unique compared to other galaxies in its capacity to sustain advanced life. And likewise, the planets we see in our solar system are proving to be unique. This would all be evidence of a supernatural being purposely designing our solar system, our galaxy, and our planet Earth in particular, so that advanced life would be possible. Although a number of my colleagues in astronomy would argue that maybe there's bacterial life on other planets, uh, but not advanced life. And that was a point that uh, Victor Stinger and I both agreed upon in our debate at Caltech, is that the universe is hostile to advanced life except for planet Earth. And that's about a 180-degree paradigm shift from what astronomers thought 20 and 30 years ago. Uh, uh, thank you for the call in, uh, from Indiana. But, uh, but, but what, uh, what do you make then, Dr. Ross, of the um, statement that came out of the Vatican Observatory uh, several years ago in which 
they seem to be almost preparing mankind for uh, a contact or some sort of disclosure announcement when they said, it's okay, you can be a Christian and believe in ETs. And in fact, they are our brothers in creation, except that they're higher sort of on the evolutionary scale so that they are without sin. I mean, pretty specific statement from the Vatican. Well, it is, uh, but I think it needs to be adjusted in light of new astronomical discoveries. And, uh, you know, we do know some of the astronomers at the Vatican Observatory, and uh, they're moving in the same direction that we are uh, on that uh, very point. So maybe you'll see the Vatican making some adjustments, but in one sense I agree with them. In fact, we commissioned three astronomers a number of years ago to write an article for us, and uh, you know I was one of the three uh, making the point that in Christianity there's some freedom on what to believe about extraterrestrial life. You know, God seems to be really enjoying His uh, work of creation, and uh, seems, because He seems to enjoy it so much, would He just stop at one planet? But our point was, if there was another planet with life on it and it would be there by God's supernatural hand, not by natural means. And all of the observations we're making of our galaxy and of other galaxies is showing us uh, that without that miraculous intervention, uh, it's not going to happen. Uh, moreover, there's a recognition that you can't get advanced life on the cosmic scene in anything less than 14 billion years. So that would mean that we're the first on the scene, even if God was out there creating them elsewhere, uh, and uh, also, we notice that uh, there's nothing within our immediate vicinity. What I mean by that, anything within 200 light years uh, where there is any evidence that uh, life would exist or could exist. And therefore, the idea that these extraterrestrials might be visiting us uh, is physically preposterous because the distances would be too great. Uh, the time travel is actually greater than the maximum time in which an advanced civilization can sustain itself. So in that sense, I don't think we need to be worried about uh, little green men coming to us on craft and disturbing our life here on planet Earth. On the other hand, I am on record as saying that the UFO phenomena is real, uh, but I don't think it's a manifestation of physical beings from another planet. Ah, okay. I was, I was going to ask your indulgence to, to stick with this for, for a few moments because it, it, it is something that I'm conflicted about. I mean, I do talk a lot about the UFO phenomena on this show, and... Uh, uh, there, you know, it, there are, it's undeniable that, that, that there are people out there who are having experiences and sightings Correct. of something, uh, and yet, sort of in the, from a Christian perspective, we have a very unique narrative that's unfolding here on planet Earth, and so I just, I don't understand the, sort of the, I mean, the logic of intelligent life from elsewhere in the universe, physical entities, visiting and sort of as interlopers as this narrative is unfolding, but if they are not physical entities, but from the spiritual realm, then it starts to make more sense. So is that, is that where you're going, that these are not inter, intergalactic, these are interdimensional entities we're talking about? Yes, yes. That, you know, we've written a number of books on the UFO phenomenon, put up some DVDs making that very point that uh, you know, 99% of what people report as UFOs do have a natural explanation but there's a 1% residual. And in particular, the close encounters, those that are closer than, say, 500 feet, uh, there's lots of evidence telling us that it's not a benign phenomenon. Uh, there's definite harm in these close encounters, and uh, it's not a physical phenomenon. It's something that transcends our space-time dimensions. 
But I would argue and have argued in my books that you can't deny the physical evidence that these kinds of things are actually real, but they're not physical. It's non-physical reality, which explains why atheist astronomers completely dismiss UFOs because their worldview doesn't permit the existence of non-physical reality. But we challenge them and say, look at the evidence. You can't really deny it. Well, Stephen Hawking uh, recently weighed in on the discussion. I thought it, the timing was interesting, and what he had to say, even more interesting, uh, that uh, uh, ETs are out there, but they might not be uh, entirely benevolent uh, uh, creatures. So uh, not sure exactly what he was trying to tell us, but... Um, we can continue to discuss that uh, when we come back with Dr. Hugh Ross as, as we discuss creation and science, but uh, other matters to attend to as well. Andy stands by in Stony Creek with a question, and we'll take yours as well when The Conspiracy Show returns. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. And Andy has been waiting patiently in Stony Creek, Ontario, for a question for Dr. Hugh Ross. Go ahead, Andy. Hi, Dr. Ross. Uh, my question or comment is regarding um, the comment you made about, uh, you know, our solar system, our galaxy, everything being very unique, and that there's uh, no proof that there's life elsewhere out there in other solar systems or other galaxies. But, you know, hundreds of years ago, when astronomers were first starting out and looking at out there in space, they didn't know what was out there. They hadn't discovered anything. We are where we are today is because people have discovered planets, discovered the way the solar system works. Who's to say in another couple hundred years that we won't discover uh, other planets out there that can and do sustain life? Well, it's a good comment, Andy. And uh, the first planet outside of our solar system was discovered in 1995. And I remember at that time the astronomical literature was rife with uh, speculation that we were on the verge of finding planetary systems identical to our own, gas giants identical to Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, and eventually planets identical to uh, Earth and uh, Venus. And uh, now we're actually finding planets that are just a little bit bigger than the Earth. Um, uh, But as we look at those planets, they are very water-rich, 10 to 50% water. And uh, we now realize that Earth, uh, in its original state, was also water-rich. Today, it's only about 0.02 to 0.03% water. So our planet, for its size and distance from its star, is extremely water-poor. But that's a fundamental requirement for advanced life. Unless it's that water-poor, you're not going to get continents and oceans existing together on the surface. And that's crucial to recycle the nutrients so that advanced life uh, would be possible. And, uh, you know, in the midst of discovering all these extrasolar planets, there was an atheist uh, paleontologist and an agnostic astronomer, uh, Brownlee and uh, Ward, who wrote a book called Rare Earth, in which they concluded that maybe there are other planets out there capable of supporting bacteria, but Earth is the only one that would have the capacity for advanced life, just because of how many hundreds of characteristics must be fine-tuned in order to get life possible here on the Earth. In fact, in our book, uh, More Than a Theory, I calculate conservatively that the probability of finding 
another planet anywhere in the entire physical universe with the capacity to support advanced life without invoking miraculous intervention is less than one chance in 10 to the 1,050th power. And to put that in context, there's only 10 to the 79 protons and neutrons uh, in the entire uh, universe, which is why astronomers are now concluding that Earth is unique in its capacity to support advanced life. But that doesn't mean there aren't moons and planets out there that would have the capacity to support uh, bacterial life, although there again we would argue that won't happen unless God miraculously creates those bacteria uh, on those extrasolar planetary systems. So that's what I meant earlier when I said there's been a paradigm shift where astronomers were thinking that planets like Earth would be very common to now where they're concluding they're either rare or non-existent. Thanks for the call from Stony Creek. And Dr. Ross, I know you are a, uh, an astrophysicist and an astronomer, and we've been talking a lot about out there. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't know if you feel comfortable uh, discussing uh, sort of the, the fingerprint of God within, uh, within ourselves, and I refer to the DNA. Uh, there's a lot of um, a lot of the DNA we don't understand. A lot of it uh, we don't seem to know what the purpose of it is. We call it junk DNA. But do you uh, or have you given any any, any attention to possible uh, signatures of the Creator within our DNA? No, we definitely have. In fact, uh, our staff biochemist Fuzz Rana and myself wrote a book uh, called Who Is Adam, in which we talk about the paradigm shift that's been generated by DNA studies, how we now have a complete genome for the human being. Uh, We have one for the mouse. Uh, In fact, recently, just a few weeks ago, they published one. Well, it's actually a draft. It's not complete, but it's about two-thirds complete for Neanderthal. And so as we look at uh, Neanderthal's DNA, we can see how different it is from human DNA. They're definitely distinct species. Uh, Neanderthals did not give rise to human beings. And uh, so the DNA discoveries are really telling us, for example, that the human species is descended from a single man and a single woman that lived in a location within 2,000 miles of the juncture of Africa, Asia, and Europe. We can even get a date for when that first man and first woman lived, and it comes between 50 and 100,000 years ago, which is consistent with the best calibration you can make of the genealogies in Genesis 5 and Genesis 11, or when God created Adam. Matter of fact, you'll see in the scientific literature, based on this new DNA evidence, uh, they're referring to the best model for human origins as the Garden of Eden hypothesis because of how closely these DNA studies match what the Bible's been teaching for thousands of years. The, um, the search for the God particle, uh, going back to an earlier caller, uh, his question about the, the Large Hadron Collider, Mm-hmm. And the uh, is it the Hogs, the Higgs, the Higgs, the Higgs boson. boson particle, sometimes called the God particle. What right. what is this this God particle? Well, its discovery would be a key linchpin in what's called the particle creation model. And you know, both particle physics and astronomers are working and trying to develop a more detailed model of creation. And we're actually being able to blend the two models together because when the universe was extremely young is when you had the creation of these fundamental particles taking place just within a fraction of a second after the Big Bang creation event. 
And so astronomers and particle physicists are working hand in hand. But in the Big Bang model for the creation of the universe, uh, you would have the production of bosons and fermions. And fermions are kind of the particles we're used to, protons, neutrons, and electrons. Uh, but the particle creation model tells us that for every fermion, there will be a boson pair. It's kind of like a husband and a wife. And uh, what the boson does is it enables the fermions to exchange forces with one another. And, you know, particle physicists have discovered lots of fermions and lots of bosons, but what they've been missing has been a fermion-boson pair, where you got the actual husband and the uh, wife partner uh, for that particular particle. Now, the Higgs boson will be the easiest particle to discover to complete that pair prediction of the particle creation model. And uh, there's now a race going on between the Large Hadron Collider team in Switzerland and France uh, with a team just outside Chicago using the Fermi Lab as to who will be the first to find that Higgs uh, boson particle. Uh, most particle physicists think that within five years it'll be a done deal. Uh, and the other big thing is if we can actually accurately measure the mass of the Higgs boson, that's going to give us a much more detailed creation model. And from our perspective, it reasons to believe the more detailed the model, the more uh, specific uh, case we can make that the God of the Bible is responsible for all this. So we're eagerly looking forward to these new discoveries. As a, as a scientist, how do you maintain the balance between uh, a faith and, and science where it seems to me that they're sort of complementary, but the more that you have uh, sort of a scientific fact, it, then, then, then faith is almost diminished, it seems to me. So it, can science go too far? Well, you'll notice that the scientific revolution uh, came out of the Reformation in Western Europe. That was the birth of the scientific method. And what was happening in the Reformation is you had people who were not priests reading the Bible for themselves for the first time. And uh, European scientists of that era notice that there was this biblical testing method. Today it's called the scientific method, but it actually comes straight from the pages of the Bible. And one of the things it talks about is how everything must be put to the test. Nothing is to believe until it's first put to the test. And there's two components to biblical faith, establishing that it is true, and then acting upon what you've proven to be true. And so there's no room within the Christian faith for blind faith. It must be put to the test. But there is that second component that's crucial. A lot of scientists I know believe in God, but they don't act on what they know to be true. So both are important. You have to establish that it's true by objective testing, and then you need to act upon what you know to be true. And then the seven-step scientific method is basically a biblical principle to guide us and most accurately putting things uh, to the test. So in that sense, uh, I've never had a problem integrating my science with my biblical faith. They're both based on the same principles of objective testing. But what are the, uh, the uh, or where are the boundaries in, in terms of scientific uh, uh, knowledge? For example, uh, if we are able to, uh, to indefinitely extend human life, uh, does does that square with with uh, 
um, you know, biblical teachings. Um, what about uh, you know being able to grow grow our own organs in a laboratory? These these types of things. Well, I think we ought to push the limits of science as much as we can. I don't see any restriction in the Bible on uh, on that particular thing. Uh, so I'm all for uh, capturing stem cells from newborns, for example, with the possibility that one day we'll have the technology to use those stem cells to make organs, I mean, be the ideal medical pathway, because you wouldn't have to worry about rejection. It's your DNA. And so the organs that you would make that way would be ideal for replacing the organs that have worn out in your body. But the Bible does tell us that there are fundamental limitations on our lifespan. Uh, you know, it tells us in Genesis 6 that it's roughly 120 years. And so we can certainly extend the lifespan beyond the 80 or 90 we enjoy today. And I'm all in favor of uh, you know, those medical advances that might enable us to live to be 100 or 110 or 120 uh, on the average. Uh, but there's certain things going on in the universe that prevent us from living longer than that. I mean, just the radiation environment we live in. So unless you're prepared to live in a deep salt mine where you've got a, you know, a thousand feet of salt all the way around you to protect you from the cosmic radiation, the radiation from the radiometric decay and the Earth's crust, uh, you're not going to be able to push that 120-year barrier. And who wants to live in a salt mine uh, protected by salt all the way around? That's not a very pleasant way to live. What about interstellar travel? Is it our destiny, according to the Bible, to travel to the stars and perhaps... Uh, uh, you know, replant our seed elsewhere in the cosmos? Well, I think it's certainly possible for us to engage in interplanetary space travel. Interstellar is another thing altogether. The stars are really far apart. I mean, uh, for example, a typical star is a million miles in diameter. If you were to model uh, a million-mile diameter star down to the size of grapefruit, and you're sitting there uh, in Toronto... Uh, you'd have to go all the way to South America to find the next nearest grapefruit. The stars are really very far apart in our uh, Milky Way galaxy. And on that basis, the laws of physics simply would not permit intelligent beings to traverse interstellar space in any kind of physical craft. Uh, the travel times are simply far long. I mean, uh, you know, what I said earlier is that the maximum time uh, an intelligent uh, species can exist in a civilized state can't be longer than 40,000 years. So if it's going to take you longer than that to traverse interstellar space, uh, then uh, it's not going to happen. You're going to go extinct before you reach your destination. But yeah, going to Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, Mars, uh, that's certainly within the realms of the laws of physics. Uh, but going to a star that's uh, 300 light years away, uh, that's beyond uh, physical possibility. Uh, there have been a number of studies uh, um, on the belief in God or uh, the, uh, the idea that humans might be programmed to believe in God because it gives us a better chance of, of survival, uh, uh, that we're hardwired, in other words, to believe in, in, in God and, and uh, um, supernatural phenomena, etc. What, what do you make of those studies? Well, I mean, I had an interesting debate with Michael Shermer on that very point. He's the executive director of the Skeptic Society, and, you know, that was his argument. And it is true that the human brain has the hardware to be able to engage in spiritual activity. 
I mean, so there is an interface there, but it's a mistake to think that the hardware uh, is simply the cause of the spiritual experiences that we have. Uh, it's like a computer. A computer is a piece of hardware, but it doesn't do anything unless a human being actually begins to operate it. And then the other thing we notice is only human beings uh, have the brain structure to support spiritual activity. You know, if this was just simply a product of evolution, how come it's only us? Uh, none of the other bipedal primates that existed previous to us has that uh, capacity. None of the animals does. It just shows up for the first time in human beings. It also shows up at great sacrifice to human survival. I mean, you really can't make the brain any bigger than it is for a human being. You make it bigger, and the brain will cook itself to death. And so in order to uh, have a brain that's capable of engaging in spiritual activity and meditation, philosophy, and mathematics, the creator had to sacrifice a lot of survival capability. We don't smell very well. Our eyesight isn't that great, or our hearing. Uh, and we don't have very strong muscles. That's also that we can have enough brain capacity to engage in higher mathematics, philosophy, and uh, spiritual uh, meditation. And so the fact that it comes at great cost uh, tells us that this can't be an accident of evolution. This is something done on purpose so that we could actually relate to human beings or relate to God. And as it says in the book of Job, we can look at the higher animals, the birds and mammals, and we can see that they're different from the bacteria and the insects. They are soulish. They're endowed with mind, will, and emotions and designed to relate and serve us human beings, to serve and please us human beings. And the point there that Job makes is, ask the animals and they'll teach you. Here's a lower life form that God designed to serve and please us. Likewise, we were designed to serve and please God himself. And so how do you explain the motivation of these animals uh, to relate to us and serve and please us in such remarkable ways when we didn't even exist? We were the last of the creation miracles. And so here are all these animals that had this capacity uh, endowed within them to serve humanity even before we existed. And once again, that can't be a product of evolution. They had nothing to adapt to. As you explained uh, uh, earlier, you are an old Earth creationist. You believe that the uh, universe is on the order of 14 billion uh, years old and right. that um, uh, modern man, our, our, we came on the scene. We were, you know, Adam was created from whole cloth about oh, 100,000, 150,000 years ago. Yeah, but around 50 to 100. 50 to 100. Okay, so what was the point of the creation that happened prior to man's existence. Well, this is something that's addressed in the book of Job and uh, Psalm 104, that all that previous life was created in order to make possible human beings and global human high-technology civilization. Without that 3.8 billion years of previously existing life, we could not have cities and roads and transportation. For example, if you look around the city of Toronto, what makes up that city is 99% biodeposits. The sand, for example, uh, is a direct result of the biology on the face of the earth. The carbonates, uh, the metals were all concentrated by sulfate-reducing bacteria. Uh, those sulfate-reducing bacteria made the planet chemically safe for advanced life. And you actually need 3 billion years of bacterial activity to transform the chemistry of the surface environment of the Earth so that advanced life would have 
22 vital poisons. These would be elements at just the right levels uh, within the environment to sustain advanced life. So thank God for all that 3.8 billion years of life. If it wasn't for that, we couldn't exist today. But if God would create man from uh, out of the dust of the earth, and instantaneously modern man appears, then why did God need to do all of the sort of the hard spade work early on? Why couldn't he have just made, uh, you know, carbon and, and uh, uh, silicone and, and uh, what other, other, you know, precious minerals and metals that are needed to sustain life, why couldn't he have just created those in a likewise fashion? Well, he could have done that, but it would have required different laws of physics. And there's other reasons why God chooses the laws of physics that he does. In particular, what I write about is that uh, God's fundamental purpose in designing the universe the way he did is to use it as a vehicle, a means to bring about the end of all evil and suffering. And so while God could have done things much more rapidly with different physical laws, he had many other reasons for why he chose the laws he did. And, uh, you know, he wanted human beings to be able to engage in high-technology civilization. So given the laws of physics, that means it's going to take hundreds of millions of years to salt the earth with enough coal, oil, natural gas, topsoil, and concentrated metals so that we could easily launch and sustain civilization. Carl Sagan uh, once said that uh, we, uh, humans, are star children. We are literally uh, composed of stardust, the things that were manufactured in the furnace, the nuclear furnace of these stars, and during some sort of stellar revolutionary event, um, these elements that we find in in, in ourselves were, were produced. Does that not square more with sort of the evolutionary uh, um, theory of how man evolved rather than God created man from nothing? Well, it does in the context that you need three previous generations of stars in order to build up all the heavy metals that you need to make advanced life possible. So I agree with Carl. We are the product of stardust. Because when the universe first came into existence, it was just hydrogen and helium. And it took the stars to make the elements heavier than helium. And it takes considerable time, billions of years of star burning, to build up the quantities of magnesium and iron and the silicon and phosphorus, carbon, oxygen, and nitrogen, so that you could have advanced life existing. It's what's called the anthropic principle in equality. Uh, given the laws of physics that we see governing the universe, you can't bring advanced life upon the cosmic scene in anything less than about 14 billion years. You really do need all of that stellar evolution. And I think the surprise of astronomy is that uh, 150 years ago, there was this belief that uh, the universe was infinitely old and uh, static throughout infinite time. And therefore, there was no need for a god to explain how life would happen. You could say with infinite time and static ideal conditions, chance will bring it all about. But now we know that the universe is not static. It has evolved. There was a creation event 14 billion years ago, and the universe dramatically changed over those 14 billion years. And it's such that there's a very narrow window of time, just tens of thousands of years wide, in which uh, human beings are their equivalent can exist in a civilized state. So 
So in that sense, that's a great example of how evolution proved the model of creation we see described in the Bible. Dr. Hugh Ross is uh, with us, old age creationist, astronomer, astrophysicist. The website is www.reasons.org. He's with Reasons to Believe Ministry. Now, this might be uh, a, a, an oversimplification, but when I look at uh, photographs taken from the, the Hubble telescope, for example, of, of the universe, it's so beautiful. Uh, I think, well, if it wasn't created, why would it look that way? What's, that's what's called the beauty principle. And, you know, a theologian, a friend of mine, goes around and lectures to scientists simply pointing out what they already know. When you look at the universe, when you look inside the cell, when you look at life on the surface of the planet, you see an extraordinary beauty and elegance. And how can you explain that very high level of beauty and elegance unless there's a creator out there that likewise appreciates that beauty and elegance and creates to display uh, that to all of us human beings? It's not ugly. And so, yeah, I've got a collection of uh, photo images of galaxies and nebulae from all over the universe, and I just really enjoy examining them. And if people want to see that, there's a wonderful website they can go to called Astronomy Picture of the Day. And it just blows you away. All right, uh, a few moments remain with uh, Dr. Hugh Ross. We'll take another time out, come back, and continue to bridge the gap between science and spirituality. Loose lips sink ships, and sometimes corporations. Got something to say? Call Richard Serrett now at 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Last call to the phones for Dr. Hugh Ross from Reasons to Believe Ministries, www.reasons.org, as we discuss creation and science. Whenever you, uh, you hear debates uh, between Darwinists or evolutionists, if you will, and creationists or those that subscribe to intelligent design, first of all, do you make a distinction between a creationist and intelligent design? Uh, yes, I do, and uh, even amongst intelligent design proponents. For example, we at Reasons to be not part of the intelligent design movement because we believe it's crucial to uh, argue for intelligent design from the context of a comprehensive, testable model for creation, where we identify who the designer is, and we make specific predictions based on our biblical model, what scientists will discover in the future. Uh, very different from uh, those intelligent design proponents who avoid identifying who the intelligent designer is and simply critique evolution rather than presenting uh, a positive case for uh, creation. And most intelligent design proponents whether they be part of the intelligent design movement or the brand that uh, we promote, uh, would be of an old Earth perspective. There's a few that take a young Earth perspective, but very few. And in our context, all of us are old Earth in our perspective. All right. Thank you for that. Now, one of the, the things that often comes up in debates between creationists or uh, those in the intelligent design camp and the, the Darwinists is that of the um, irreducible complexity. Uh, that there are certain uh, organisms, for example, uh, that are un- 
evolvable. Uh, in uh, un, uh, e, um, I can't even uh, <laughs> think of the word I'm trying to say here. Evolve. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, well, I mean, they do not the evolve. Unevolvable. Uh, there are uh, machinery within the molecules of the cell. Yeah, like the bacterial flagellum. Exactly. It's so it's so perfect in its design. It's you cannot reduce its complexity and still have it operate. So it must have been created wholly. Right. Well, what we pointed out at Reasons to Believe is of the biochemical arguments uh, for God's supernatural intervention, the one based on irreducible complexity is the weakest of the whole lot. So it astounds me that the Christians keep promoting the weakest argument when they've got much more powerful arguments uh, that they can use. But there's a reason why irreducible complexity is promoted uh, by the, so many in the Christian community, it's because it doesn't force you to take a position on the age of the earth or when God created the first life form. Uh, but from an old earth perspective, there are much more powerful arguments. And you know what atheists will point out is, sure, you have this complex machinery inside the cell, but the different components are not irreducibly complex in that they can be used for other purposes. So, for example, what you see in the rotary engine of the flagella is that uh, you've got, uh, you know, a little rotor there, but that rotor can be used for other purposes besides the flagellum. It's kind of like the parts that make up a car. You've got nuts and bolts, and uh, you've got axles and gears. That can be used to make an automobile, but it can be used for something else. Now, if you broaden the argument, what you discover is, yes, it has alternate purposes, but each purpose fulfills a particular design objective. And this is where it reasons to believe we make the point that uh, there are the codes that you see inside the cells. There's alphabets, there's information storage going on. Uh, there's error minimization, which I think is a very powerful argument. How do you explain the fact that all the machinery inside the cell and the information storage and the information exchange takes place with a minimum error propagation, an error propagation rate that's far below what we human beings are able to achieve in the machines that we make. And so it reasons to believe we tend to argue for biochemical design through analogy. In other words, if we're seeing a level of complexity in design that far exceeds what we human beings are capable of with all of our technology and finances, then surely someone who's far richer than we are and far more knowledgeable and intelligent than we are, must be responsible for what we're seeing there. So what, what we're saying is there's about ten really good arguments for biochemical, supernatural biochemical design. We need to exploit all ten rather than picking the weakest of the ten. What other recent uh, scientific discoveries uh, have you very excited in that they, uh, in, in, in your, from your perspective, affirm the scientific accuracy of the Bible? Well, one that's come up very recently is some DNA studies that show that the early history of humanity is one of human beings residing in a single locale and then experiencing a very rapid burst of aggressive migration into all the parts of the world and then basically stopping to form nations. And that's exactly what you see in Genesis 10 and 11. So it's a dramatic demonstration of uh, what the Bible has been teaching for thousands of years and also comes up with dates for when this migration period took place, which is consistent uh, with the date you see for the events that took place shortly after uh, Noah came off the ark. 
Let's go to uh, the Beaches neighborhood here in Toronto, the good, and uh, welcome Michael to the program. Hello, Michael. Good morning. Yes, good morning, Richard. Uh, this seems to be a debate among young Earth creationists 6,000 years and older Earth creationists uh, over a million years. But I guess the question is, was the, uh, the story about the flood, was that a worldwide flood or maybe just like some kind of uh, local flood that happened and, you know, other religions picked up on it? Well, Michael, just a few days ago, I gave a lecture at a seminary on the, the flood of Noah, and I purposely titled it, Noah's Flood, Worldwide or Global, making the point that the Bible frequently describes, in fact, it consistently describes worldwide events that did not cover the whole globe. And so our position at Reasons to Believe is that the flood uh, you know, wiped out all of humanity except for those on board the ark, and all the soulish animals associated with human beings, except for those on board the ark. But that was a time when humanity was local in its habitation of the planet, and therefore there was no need for God to flood Antarctica or Greenland or Australia. People weren't living there, uh, and it was simply a worldwide flood that was not global. For example, it says of King Solomon that the kings and queens of the whole world came to uh, his court to hear of his wisdom, and it tells us in the biblical context that these kings and queens came from as far away as southern Arabia and uh, the land of Sheba, which is the current region in Africa known as Ethiopia. So that was the whole world uh, for King Solomon. And likewise, it says uh, in the, the book of Romans, uh, Paul says of the Roman Christians, your faith has been heard throughout the whole world. Well, he meant the Roman Empire. He wasn't referring to the Maoris in New Zealand. And uh, likewise, you see of the Genesis flood, it tells us in Second Peter 3 that the world at the time the event took place was flooded. The Greek phrase was cosmos tote. So the fact that the Greek word cosmos was qualified with an adjective tells us it wasn't the whole planet. And the, the idea that uh, all of the animals were aboard the ark, I've read uh, some feasibility studies, uh, and uh, when you look at the size of the ark and, uh, and how many, when you, when you uh, consider that uh, on average the size of most mammals on the planet are about the size of a rat, uh, and if you exclude, of course, uh, you know, uh, uh, animals that, 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 that swim or fly, etc., it, it's quite possible he could have put two of most animals on board. Well, especially when you recognize that the text uses specific Hebrew words that's limited to the nephesh creatures. These are birds and mammals that have the capacity to relate to human beings and serve and please human beings. So we're not looking at millions of species of life. We're looking at the high hundreds or the low thousands, and in that context, the ark is plenty big enough, and eight people can take care of them for a 13-month period. Last question uh, before we say goodnight, uh, Dr. Ross. And uh, uh, one of my favorite um, uh, artifacts and, and topics of discussion, really, uh, is the Shroud of Turin. And there have been a number of scientific studies about the Shroud uh, uh, in terms of, you know, the whole debate. It, was it a clever medieval forgery, or is it, in fact, the burial cloth of Jesus Christ? And uh, I just find the evidence uh, the, to be absolutely remarkable. Where do you weigh in on this uh, artifact? Well, Relic, not totally say. settled yet, but it could be settled. I mean, uh, you know, a few years back, JPL Laboratory down here in California 
did a carbon-14 test, which said it was 13th century. Uh, but that's rather recent to get an accurate carbon-14 date. After all, the half-life is 5,715 years. And they only looked at four square inches. And so basically, uh, the GPL team said, if you want us to do it again, we can give you a really accurate carbon-14 date, but you need to give us a, a square foot, not just four square inches. And so far, the people who own the shroud are saying, we don't want to give you that much of the cloth. But the JPL team also pointed out they found dyes in the shroud that weren't invented until the 13th century. And the thing we pointed out is the 13th century uh, A.D. was that century where you had 16 tons of wood sold from the cross of Jesus. It was an era when there was a tremendous uh, uh, market uh, for artifacts of Jesus. So in that sense, um, I'm leaning towards the idea that it was a very clever uh, 13th century forgery. In fact, it's even possible they may have crucified a human being to death in order to get uh, a forgery that's of a high quality uh, that we see of the shroud. Uh, but yeah, the, the debate can be settled uh, simply by using a bigger piece of the shroud. Uh, Dr. Ross, it was uh, a real uh, a delight having you on the program, and uh, I, I really thank you for hanging in there for the full two hours. I know that's a long time, and uh, I hope you'll join me again sometime. I'll be happy to do it. You've got some fun callers. I, I had a good time. I appreciate that. Thank you. All right, Dr. Hugh Ross, and uh, the website again, www.reasons.org, Reasons to Believe uh, Ministry. We will have him on again. And I just got an email from uh, John Hutchison, who is selling his anti-gravitic laboratory on eBay, or auctioning it off, and uh, he's uh, emailed back to say, yes, it's true, and uh, he'd be delighted to come on the show to talk about it. So we'll get him in on uh, the program in the next uh, couple of weeks. All right, back with a few closing thoughts when the conspiracy show continues you're listening to an exclusive podcast of the conspiracy show with richard serrett heard every sunday night from 11 p.m to 1 a.m on zoomer radio the new am 740 starting uh today actually monday and every monday and friday hereafter beginning at 4 30 p.m you can hear yours truly on the afternoon express with Norm Edwards. We'll um, uh, do a quick uh, hit at 4.30 p.m., Mondays and Fridays, uh, just to talk about what's coming up on the show. We'll do that on Fridays. We'll tell you what's uh, coming up on the Sunday show. And then on the Monday, following the Sunday show, uh, we'll tell you, uh, or I'll uh, tell Norm and, uh, and you, what you missed on the Sunday program. And I'll also share some uh, interesting stories uh, of a conspiratorial or uh, a paranormal or supernatural nature. For example, here's something that I might uh, mention uh, this afternoon on Norm's show. King Tut's DNA uh, has been uh, analyzed and is allegedly or allegedly shows that King Tut was Western European. And despite the refusal of the Secretary General of the Egyptian Supreme Council of Antiquities, Zahi Hawass, uh, to release any DNA results which might indicate the racial ancestry of Pharaoh Tutankhamun, the leaked results reveal that King Tut's DNA is a 99.6% match with Western European Y chromosomes. The DNA test results were inadvertently released or revealed on a Discovery Channel TV documentary filmed with Hawass's permission, but it seems as if the Egyptian failed to spot the giveaway part of the documentary which revealed the test results. 
Hawass previously announced that he would not release the racial DNA results of Egyptian mummies, obviously because he feared the consequences of such a revelation, according to the European Union Times. That's the EU uh, Times online newspaper. On the Discovery Channel broadcast, which can be seen on the Discovery Channel website, um, unless they pull it, uh, the camera pans over a printout of DNA test results from King Tut. And then it goes on to explain the uh, what they call the STR values for 17 DNA markers visible in the video. And uh, what does it all mean? Well, fortunately, someone by the name of Witt Athey provides the key to the list. He's a, a retired physicist whose working career was primarily at the Food and Drug Administration, where he was chief of one of the medical uh, device labs. And he uh, received his doctorate in physics and biochemistry at Tufts University, and go on, he, they go on to explain a bit of his bio, biography. And uh, then, I guess, he got in touch um, with the reporter here at the European Times and explained that the DNA markers all seem to indicate, or at least 99.6% certainty, that King Tut is of Western European ancestry. Wow. Well, that's a bit of a shocker. All right. My thanks once again to John Soterio for producing tonight's program with Dr. Hugh Ross as we discussed creation and science. Thanks for a good job, John Soterio. And also, as always, my eternal gratitude to Dan Ellison for technical production. We'll talk to you uh, Sunday night the 18th, and we'll unravel the mystery of the Bohemian Grove. Is it just a an exclusive men's club or something more nefarious going on there? We'll discuss. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. And what I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.